Amen. Good evening. It is great to see all of you. Who started the count on the countdown? Who did that? Yes. That was the best. That has never, ever happened in the history of Rio Vista Community Church countdowns. And I loved it. It was like hopeful anticipation. It's the way it ought to be. It was so, yes. Way to go. Except now, now don't feel obligated to do it out of duty every week because that'll ruin it. That'll spoil it. But I, I loved it. Spontaneous. Spont- it, was as, it was as spontaneous as Presbyterians get. You, you know what they say about us. They say, uh, you better do it right the first time in the Presbyterian Church because that's the way you're going to do it for the next 400 years. Um, uh, well, my name is Matt. If you are new to us, uh, our lead pastor and, and regular teacher, Tom, is not here. He's actually away with his uh, daughter, who is a senior in high school, which is absurd to me, uh, Haley, on their senior trip. He takes all his kids. When they become seniors, he takes them on a trip. And they got to go up to New York uh, and go, on, go to some shows and things like that. And uh, they're up there now. So you can be thinking about them and, and, um, and praying for their safe return. But it is uh, wonderful to be here. I'm one of the other pastors here on staff. Uh, but man, more than that, uh, I am a member of this congregation. I, I, uh, my family and I have been going to this church for a lot longer than I've been actually uh, a vocational minister here. And I just love being with you. And on Saturday nights, it's kind of cool. It's a little more intimate. And a lot of you, I just look out there and you can sort of see a little better who all's out there. And uh, just, it's just, it's like I'm with friends. It's like we're sitting down together to, to dig into God's word and, and to receive his wisdom. And that's really how I worked through this passage this week. I, I wanted to do something uh, maybe a little different than a typical sermon uh, where you just kind of go through intellectually and you evaluate and assess and, 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 and all that sort of thing. And I, I did all that, but I really wanted to walk through this devotionally and then sort of really share my devotionals with you, my own personal worship with you. So um, that's all I'm going to say about that. I'm not going to show you or tell you when this was, you know, when we're remembering God or when we're doing all that, but that, that's what we're doing here. And for those of you who are new, we have a thing called personal worship. Every Monday you get sent the passage. We have a little app on your phone that you can get, uh, which is awesome. And it sends you the passage for the next uh, weekend. And then throughout the week, you, you work through this habit, this practice of remembering God and where he is. Uh, remembering yourself, being honest with him about who you are, taking a fair, fearless moral inventory, uh, fearless evaluation, uh, resting in his grace, remembering that we don't get stuck in our shame or our sin. It is separate from us because we are, um, we are sanctified by Christ and we rest in him so that from that place of restful redemption, we can receive his wisdom for his purposes instead of for our own, right? Oh, give me some wisdom, Lord. Give me a little self-help so that I can get, you know, healthier, wealthier, wiser. That's not it. That's not it. If we remember him, we're honest with him, we rest in his grace, then that wisdom comes into uh, the mind of a redeemer who understands that role in his or her life. And, uh, and then we go out and we, we do what it says. So that's how I, I, I went through this passage as I always do. But I wanted to kind of work devotionally with you in that. So one of the first things that came from, to mind for me, it's very easy, especially if you've been around the church a long time, to sort of blaze through these passages sort of intellectually, you know, and be dissecting them and reading the study notes and, you know, learning what this word meant and that thing meant and learning all these interesting facts. And you kind of forget that you're standing in the middle of a story with real people. So the first thing I did when I engaged this particular story, this particular event in the gospel of the Apostle John, one of the disciples, is I thought, what was it like to be John before he was John? 
What was it like to be him in that moment when this was happening to him? So I want you to do the same thing with me tonight as I read the story. I want you to remember what led up to these events, okay? The, the Gospel of John is one of the four uh, historical accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus the Christ. That's not his last name, Jesus Christ. Christ, Christus, Messiah, Savior. Jesus the Christ. John was one of these guys. And, and, you know, we tend to think that all these guys were theologians, you know, that they all had these highly sophisticated understandings of God and salvation and redemption. They really didn't. They were all Jews, so they were, you know, good Jewish boys. They, they'd all been, you know, taught the scriptures and these kinds of things, and they knew them probably fairly well. They probably weren't as educated um, as others, but they probably knew the scriptures well. But there was just a lot of speculation in that time in the, in the midst of real life, because, you know, the Jews were supposed to be God's chosen people, and, and the, the world was supposed to be blessed, you know, through the, the Jews, and Jerusalem was the holy city of God, and the temple of God was in Jerusalem, and it had been consumed by Rome. It was under the thumb of, of these pagan, polytheistic devil worshipers. So the Jews were trying to sort all this out, and they knew that the Bible talked about, they knew that the, 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 the Old Testament, the Scriptures, uh, talked about a coming Messiah, and they were trying to figure out what that meant, and was he a military leader, you know, what did it look like? And all these guys were caught up in that, and in their day-to-day -day lives, and getting roughed up by a Roman soldier every now and then, or mistreated. They were trying to figure all this out, and then this guy Jesus comes along, and he, he takes them in, there's something compelling about him and they follow him and they sort of leave everything behind. And so John is one of these guys and I love in this gospel, he refers to himself in the gospel. Whenever he mentions himself, he calls himself the one Jesus loved. And he's not bragging. He's not going, well, the best one, the one that he really loved. He's basking in the beauty of Christ's love. So he says the one Jesus loved. So the one Jesus loved... Um, has just been following Jesus and watching the building of his notoriety, his popularity, his influence in culture. He's been watching the, the quiet schemes and plots around his, his Messiah, his Savior, his Lord, his Rabbi, to do him harm. And he certainly doesn't believe. He believes at the right moment Jesus is going to do whatever he can do. He's going to call out the army and he's going to save the day. And then it doesn't happen. And so John, before he sits in this room, is just, he's just a week away from when Jesus came proudly into the city of Jerusalem, except his, his pride was represented in, 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 the, in the humility of a servant on a donkey. It's a paradox. He came in as a king, but a king of peace, and yet this king of, this, this, this king of peace demanded your, your allegiance. And Jesus had seen this happen. And then he'd watched the disintegration of his leader. The humiliation. I want you to put in your mind for a moment the person that you most trust and respect in the whole world. Maybe it's your mother. Maybe it's your father. And I want you to imagine the absolute stripping away of all of their dignity to the point of utter nakedness before your eyes. And that's what the disciple who Jesus loved had witnessed. 
before he was sitting in this room. And then here's what happened. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And by the way, that's not all the Jews. These guys were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. This was the Jews who were out to get him. These were the the Pharisees, the leaders who had plotted to kill him. Jesus came and stood stood among them and said to them, I just glanced right over that, didn't I? (laughs) Jesus, the one they had seen die on a cross on a garbage heap outside the city, came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad. That is the most boring translation of that I have ever... Then they were glad. Isn't that great? Jesus is back. You know, good news. I, I thought maybe something like this would happen. No! The better translation of that is they were overcome. They rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again. So I kind of imagine they get frozen like a deer in the headlights for a second. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, it's me. Look. And they go, bah! And they charge him, right? So like he's in the middle of his spiel, you know, peace to you. And then they tackle him and, you know, he gets up and he, st- and he stops him. And he says, okay, okay, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. A hush. And he said this, and, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And then he said something that he had actually said to the Apostle Peter in the book of Matthew. He said, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. That doesn't mean that these men have just earned the right to judge people. It means that as the Holy Spirit is inside of them, as proclaimers of the truth, as proclaimers of the gospel, they are His hands in the world with divine authority by His power. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, wasn't with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord! But he said to them, and, and you know, we give this guy a hard time, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I think he was destroyed. We give this guy a hard time. You need to know that Thomas went on to evangelize India and die a martyr. The Christians of India, if you go to India today, and I've been there, all the Christians are in the south of India, the southern half of India, where, where Thomas landed. But in comes Thomas, and you also need to know that in, the Luke, in Luke's account of this story, all of the disciples didn't believe it. He showed all of them his piercings. And so I think with a devastated heart, he says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe Thomas needs evidence. He needs tangible, concrete evidence. He will not be fooled again. But eight days later, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them again and said, Peace be with you. 
Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here and see my hands and put, put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas answers him, actually, with the greatest understanding and proclamation of who he is up to this point, with the exception of maybe Peter when he called him the Christ. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, you have believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in His name. Signed, the one who Jesus loved. So as we've entered into that story, um, to experience this text today and to walk away uh, with what I believe John and the Lord wanted us to walk away with, you're going to have to open your mind a little bit. Um, because I'm going to tell you that the author, John, tests modern Western sensibilities here. He, all of these Gospels do. But John, particularly in this passage... He tests modern Western sensibilities. And by the way, if you're a Christian sitting there and thinking, oh yeah, he's talking to these people in here who don't know Jesus, the skeptics, right? The, pre, the, pre, the pre-converted. He's not talking to me. Well, yes, I am. Because here's the deal. We all have the virus, okay? We, we are all children of the Enlightenment. We've all been taught uh, generation after generation after generation since the 18th century to think with our left side of the brain. We've all been taught to test everything intellectually. We've all been taught... We've all been rewarded for, show me the holes. Show me where to put my finger. Show me. Show me, show me, show me. Intellectual. Prove it. Prove it to me up here. And that is why, for those of you uh, who are not Christians, there has been a huge barrier between you and the person of Jesus, upon whom all of Christianity rests, right? Jesus and his work accomplished. It's not Jesus the good teacher and all that. It's Jesus and his work accomplished. Because uh, our post-enlightenment left brains have told us those things don't happen. So I can't even entertain them. But it's also, if you are a skeptic and not a Christian, why you see many, many Christians who live as though Jesus isn't real. Because we as Christians, one of the dangers of being affected by that enlightenment thinking, which by the way, is good, it's a good thing. Trust me, I'm not advocating the dark ages here. Okay, before the enlightenment and the dark ages, there was a heavy emphasis on superstition, okay, not not using the mind at all. And the enlightenment came along and broke through that and wonderful things have happened through the enlightenment. But we've created this false dichotomy where it's one or the other, it's faith or reason. And to believe stuff like this, I have to throw my brain out the door. Well, Jesus, right here in this passage, and John uh, tells the story, speaks to both. He speaks to both faith and reason because he knows that we are complete people. We are both. He speaks to the heart and the mind. He speaks, he shows us experientially, and he addresses our thoughts. 
So, there are two things that, uh, that test our sensibilities. The first one is that John is an enthusiastic and unapologetic proselytizer. And we don't like that. He maintains that the very purpose of this book, he says it at the end of this part, right? He says the very purpose of this book and the reason that he's chosen these particular events of Jesus' life, because he did pick and choose, right? He said that. He said, Jesus did a lot more things, but I've chosen these things to convince you to believe as I believe, John says. I'm trying to persuade you, whatever it is you believe, forget it and believe what I believe. And that offends our modern philosophical, ethical, even moral sensibilities, doesn't it? We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to force our beliefs on others. We'll get to that in a little bit. There's a second sensibility that you're going to have to temper a little bit today and open your mind about, and that is that John wants you, and I'm speaking not just to the non-Christian out there, but to the Christian child of the Enlightenment, John wants you to accept the existence and integration of both a physical and a supernatural world. He wants you to really believe that, that there is a physical world and a supernatural world and they are integrated. And by the way, he's not asking you for your commitment to Jesus as a wise teacher or a humble servant or a champion of justice. It was all those things. No, no, no. John wants you to accept that a man who walked the earth, he went to great lengths to talk about the physicality of Jesus, was also divine. And God himself. He wants you to accept that this man rose from the dead and that he imparted after that the super, it's just the craziest part of all maybe. He rose from the dead, God himself came to earth, became a man, rose from the dead and then, Christian, He imparted the supernatural, personal presence of God in you. When Christ did His work and you received it, and you were justified before God and made pure before God in His eyes, God's presence entered you in the form of the Holy Spirit. And that matters. And this offends our modern intellectual sensibilities, doesn't it? It's why, Christian, it's hard for you to share your faith, isn't it? It's not just that you're fearful that they'll think you're nuts. It's fearful that you're fearful that you're nuts. You're fearful that this is nuts. What's coming out, I can't believe what's coming out of my mouth. Because we're children of that thinking. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to open your mind to the skeptic in all of us and listen to John today. Just give John a chance because here's the deal. If you got a letter in the mail, I heard somebody say this a few weeks ago uh, around Easter. He said, if, if you got a letter in the mail and it was on a formal legal letterhead, maybe even recognized the name of the law firm, and it told you that a great aunt had died that you didn't know and she left you millions of dollars, you'd be skeptical, right? But you'd probably check it out. So that's what I'm asking you to do. No matter where you are on the, spec- on the skepticism spectrum, I want you to just stop for a minute. Don't think like a soldier defending what you already believe. Think like a scout who goes out and observes to learn the truth. So, with that in mind, 
And again, uh, as a part of my own personal worship, uh, there are some things that John, who was highly selective, as I said, uh, some events in Jesus' life that he chose to share. And in this particular passage, which is really climactic, it's pretty interesting that John's climactic moment of, the, of, the, of his gospel was not the resurrection of Jesus. It was really what happened in this room. This was really important to John because how do we know that? Because at the end of this story, he says, I've written all these things. I've chosen what I've chosen, even though he did a lot more things, so that you might know that Jesus is who he said he was. So he picks this moment, and in this moment, there are four things that he wanted you to know in this climactic conclusion of the gospel. The first one is that word peace. In this little tiny paragraph, in this little tiny story, John quotes Jesus three separate times. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you, he says. If you look at the Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, he wrote all these letters. Do you know that every single one of those letters begins with a salutation, grace, and peace to you? Well, you know, we are used to saying hello and goodbye and, you know, aloha and all those kinds of things when we greet people and all that. But let me tell you what peace meant to these guys, to these people. This was the word that came from the Hebrew word shalom. And if you know me, you know I'm a big fan of this word because this word brings a lot of clarity with a lot of things. Shalom is more than just peace. Ah, let's be friends. Shalom was the belief in the restoration of the way things ought to be. It was perfect peace. It was perfect level playing field, justice, mercy, grace, love, beauty. There were no haves and have nots when shalom was in place. But here's what's fascinating, and this is what speaks beyond. It's what makes our enlightenment brain inadequate. It makes it inadequate to just consider ideas and, and it requires us to consider relationships and people and our Creator. It means more than that. At its root, at its core, even before it means the restoration of peace, it means the restoration of a relationship. It means... The way things were with God. So let me put something in context for you. Before the fall of Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when God walked with them, when they were naked and unashamed, when everything was very good, there was shalom. Perfect peace. And simply put, the fall of man, the rebellion against God, corrupted shalom. So when Jesus walks into that room, he chooses some pretty choice words, doesn't he? The last words he said before they heard these words, do you remember what they were? It is finished. What was finished? The violence he suffered, the wrath of the righteous wrath of God, he had to suffer to restore peace between us and God. So the first words he says after it is finished are shalom with you. 
shalom with you. Shalom with you. And it becomes this theme all throughout the New Testament. Look it up. Look how many times that word peace, shalom, appears throughout the Scriptures. Look in the Old Testament. And there's this great climactic verse about peace that says a lot about how peace is achieved in this world. And it's not just with a bunch of good ideas and social justice and all those kinds of things. Those are benefits. Those are fringe benefits of this. But in Isaiah chapter 9, when, uh, when God is prophesying about the coming Messiah, you'll recognize this from Christmas. He says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of what? Peace. Shalom. The first Adam disrupted peace with his rebellion. The second Adam, which is the way the New Testament describes Jesus, was required to restore peace. It had to be restored by someone, not something, not a set of ideas, not hard work. Someone corrupted and someone resurrected. Jesus, the Prince of Peace. All of Christianity pivots on whether Jesus was who He said He was because He is necessary in Christianity to restore shalom. That's remembering God. The God of peace, no matter where you are in a situation, in a moment in your life, no matter what your struggles are, how dire it looks all around you, remember, God is the God of shalom. And that is His end. And that is the direction we're heading, even in spite of ourselves. So the second thing is this other uh, provocative thing, uh, sent out people. We are a sent out people, John says. Jesus comes into that upper room and he speaks to these disciples and he says, here I am. And he doesn't say, here I am, look, I'm resurrected. Boo, here I go. He gives them a mission, right? So here's the deal. We don't like this. We don't like the idea of someone forcing their beliefs on us. And you know what? That's correct. You shouldn't force your beliefs on somebody. But the point of the gospel is you shouldn't have to. You're not the lawyer. You're not the judge. You're the witness. What does the witness do? The witness just simply testifies to what he's seen. And what has changed his life. So if the witness hasn't seen anything and his life hasn't been changed, then he's not very persuasive, is he? But if he's seen this, he will live and die for it. And by the way, every one of us is an evangelist. That word evangelist means spreader of the good news. You know where that came from? Or one of the places that, that the only other places that appears anywhere? You remember the whole uh, marathon, the race, the 26.2 miles, and the story of the herald? The guy who ran 26.2 miles to announce that they had won the battle and then he dropped dead because he had just run 26.2 miles and apparently didn't monitor his hydration and pace himself. That was a runner's joke. Sorry. Um, I'm clearly not a runner. Um, He came to deliver the good news. the The euangelion. He came to herald the good news. So, we're all evangelists because we all have sets of beliefs. We all have systems of belief and they run up against each other's systems of beliefs and the truth is, ultimately, when I tell you what my beliefs are or when I tell you that your beliefs are wrong or I imply that your beliefs are wrong, I'm evangelizing my beliefs, aren't I? So, it's a fallacy that only Christians do this. We all are evangelists. We all have systems of belief. We may compromise. We may not... Um, push, whatever those things are, but we all have beliefs that we believe people would be better off if they believe what we believed. 
And so Jesus sends these people out. He says they are sent out people. Why did Jesus not only rise but stay? Well, he stayed to attest to the reality of his bodily resurrection because it's necessary. But he also stayed to commission his followers to go out into the world. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because of this. Because when you understand that you're a sent out person, that changes the way you wake up every morning. It changes how you understand what your job is for and how you are to spend your money and your time. It changes the way you raise your children because now if I believe in the gospel, if I believe that God's ultimate goal is perfect peace and that I'm an agent of that peace in the world, what do I believe about my children? That that's their ultimate aim. My ultimate aim is to see them come to become children of peace and men and women of peace. And now I invest in them differently, don't I? It helps me to make those decisions about which things to be involved with, what crazy schedule to sort out. Because I ask a new question, a different question. I don't just ask what will most enrich them or what will keep them the safest. Those are all legitimate things. But what I really want to know is what will penetrate their heart and mind with the gospel? What will teach them to love the way Jesus loves? What will teach my child to embrace what they have as a gift of God's grace and mercy and not an entitlement that they deserve? You see, when I realize that I'm sent out, I realize that my children are, are to be evangelized just like anyone else. My goals change for everything that I have. All of a sudden, I, I know how important my, my wealth is, my time, all these things. I know where they fit. My relationships and how I invest in people. And all of a sudden, when I'm sent out, no one's just an object anymore. The guy who bags my groceries, the person who cuts my hair, they're all people now to whom I've been sent with my life and my words. So the Apostle Peter, who was also sitting in that room, went on to say these words. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. If you're going to be a Christian, you're a sent out person. And it changes everything. The gospel changes everything. So the next uh, thing or person that uh, John wanted you to know about, and by the way, that's go and do what it says. That's where that came from in my personal worship. The next thing that, that, uh, that uh, John wants us to know about is the Holy Spirit. Now this Holy Spirit seems kind of crazy, and I think... As Christians, intellectually, you know how this is supposed to work, but there are three people in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a person, and He dwells in you. He abides in you after you come to Christ. Um, for those of you who are kind of uh, uh, Bible nerds, and you're going, wait a minute, I thought that the Holy Spirit didn't come till Pentecost. Well, the understanding of this, um, because in the, in the Lucan version of this, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come. He breathes on Him, He does all that, but He basically says this is a foreshadowing of the coming of the Holy Spirit who will come like a wind and He'll inhabit you on the day of Pentecost, which we'll be celebrating in, in, a, few, in, a, in a matter of weeks. But He tells them they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. But it's not just the apostles who get it. Peter makes that clear. 
And in, uh, in, uh, and in Acts, um, Peter says this, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles, the non-Jews, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. In other words, God preached the gospel to them through me by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So we all have the Holy Spirit in us. You ever think about the implications of that? You should. If you don't know much about the Holy Spirit, you should learn about Him. But I'll tell you a few things that you need to remember. The first one is this. He produces fruit in you. Love, joy, peace. Stop for a moment. Take a breath. Close your eyes. Love, joy, peace. Patience, kindness, goodness. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Holy Spirit in you produces those things in you. He gives you wisdom. He restrains evil and convicts the heart. He restrains evil and convicts the heart. I will tell you very personally that I struggled with an addiction through college and through the, my, into my early 30s. And the addiction, addiction was overcoming me. And I remember driving to places to, to carry out, to, to act on my addiction and sobbing and weeping and crying out to myself and to God to turn around and not being able to turn around. Now, if you know anything about addiction, it doesn't surprise you. You know what the work it does on your heart and your mind and your will, the chemicals in your brain that get going. Once you've, once you've fallen off that slippery slope and been triggered, very hard to turn around. But I'm going to tell you what I believe was making me cry out to God, and that was the Holy Spirit in me yelling at me, because he loved me. You know the scriptures say that when you pray to God and you don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit groans to the Father for you. He weeps for you. He hurts like you do. He dwells in you. There's one other thing to remember about the Holy Spirit. He can be quenched. It says that too. Somehow in the mystery of our free will and the way that that works, the Holy Spirit abiding in me as a Christian can be quenched by my, in, my spiritual indifference, my hatred of God's law, says, and by my anger. And as your brother, and as your pastor, and as a fellow part of society, I will tell you there's a lot of anger in our culture right now. It just pours into us on TV and the news and reality TV and social media. It's like a virus. I don't know if you ever saw this Ghostbusters 2, that classic. But in Ghostbusters 2, 500 years ago, when dinosaurs roamed the earth and Chip and I were in high school. Um, well, he was older. He's way older than me. He's like, he's like five years older than me. But anyway, in this movie, uh, the premise of the movie is that there was this orange sludge that was running under the city and making everybody furiously angry at each other. But I'm going to tell you what, man, there's something running through the pipes in our culture right now. There's some kind of sludge that is making us all angry all the time and self-righteous and self-justified. And you need to turn it off because it quenches the Holy Spirit in you. And think of that word. It uses that word, quenches. Pours water on a fire. Because that's what he is if you let him do his thing. So, John wants you to know that God's end is peace. That you are a sent out people. 
He wants you to know that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know what that is? That's resting in His grace. The Holy Spirit is a gift to you from Christ by His grace to empower you to live out this faith. To work in, through, and in spite of you to bring peace to the world. That's what He wants for you. Last one. Doubts. John comes after our doubts. And you know, Jesus is patient with Thomas, isn't He? He says, after the fact, come on, come on you know, you, you've seen and you believe. Blessed are those who haven't seen and believe. Well, there's more to it than just that. He's not just saying, hey, you should take a blind leap of faith and you shouldn't believe it. Let me tell you what Jesus is saying. He's saying, after all you've seen, think about what John had seen in his lifetime, aside from the fact that we're here that we're intellectual beings with bodies, that the world is complicated and beautiful and spectacular and there's an ecosystem. All of these things that scream into your ear order and intelligence and design. And he's saying, really? After all of that, you need to stick your finger in my wrist? Well, he says the same thing to you and me. But to assuage some of your skepticisms and perhaps things that you've learned in college... As I learned as well. I want to share just a couple little thoughts with you. Tom did some of this last week. Some apologetics defensive of the scriptures. Uh, I want to do a little bit with you. Alright, so the Bible. Let's start with that. You know, if you, don't, if, you, if you believe the Bible is a conspiracy. If you believe the Bible has been edited and redacted over, over hundreds and hundreds of years and changed over time. Then everything I've said today means nothing. It's worthless. I just sound like an idiot. So let me tell you a few things about the Bible. Okay? Um, and by the way, this won't be ironclad, and I think God wants it that way. Okay, this won't solve all your issues, and you can go and you can Google it, and you can find somebody who disagrees. But all of them agree on what I'm about to show you. Okay, so the way you determine the authenticity of an ancient text is you get all the ancient texts you can find, and you compare them to each other, and then if there are anomalies, like these six say one thing, and this one says the other, then you throw out the bad one, right? And you say, well, this is... And then you assemble what the most authentic version of the original text was, all right? So give you some examples. Plato... We have seven ancient manuscripts of Plato. Okay, before the printing press is what's considered ancient. Okay, we have seven manuscripts, seven copies of Plato. Okay, the first copy we have dates 1,200 years after Plato. So 1,200 years passed before we have a hold of a copy of that. And there are seven total after that. Okay, seven manuscripts, 1,200 years, first one. Aristotle, a little better. We got 49 manuscripts of Aristotle, the first one dating to 1,100 years after Aristotle was alive. Homer, this one's pretty good now. We could be pretty sure. We'd feel pretty good about this one, wouldn't we? 643 manuscripts of Homer dating only 500 years after he wrote. So we've got 643 um, you know, fragments and, and parts and pieces of this thing. And we can probably do really well at assembling what Homer actually said, right? And we find that of those 643 fragments and you know, partial and whole copies of Homer, 95% agreement. You feel pretty good about that, right? Anybody ever heard anybody question Plato? I don't really think that he wrote this. I think it's a conspiracy that it, Aristotle never said that. You ever heard anybody say that? All right, well now let's look at the New, let's look at the New Testament. 5,600 manuscripts. 
5,600. Now, that's not all complete copies, but that's 5,600 larger and smaller portions of text that can be contrasted and compared, and believe me, have been ad nauseum. The closest one dates to within 100 years of the life of Jesus. We have one fragment that's only 27 years after the life of Jesus. One little tiny piece of John. That's only there. 99.5% agreement between all of these fragments. And yet, it's a conspiracy. They've changed it over the years. They've tried. They've, 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 they've rewritten it. It's political reasons. It's religious reasons. They're hungry for power. They're trying to get money. They've changed all of this. They've done all of that. Why? 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 Because it's an offense to our modern sensibilities. It can't be true. And God can't lay claim on my life. No matter what the history says. And then you have to deal with one other thing. You have to deal with the fact, as Tom said last week, that all of these guys died for this. And many, many, many thousands of people thereafter. You have to deal with that fact. And you have to deal with another fact. And that is the absolute absence of any written text, anything written, that disputes the resurrection, that gives evidence that it's not true, doesn't exist. Well, they threw those away. They burned them. Do you see how complex this conspiracy theory has to be? Usually when you commit a conspiracy, it is for self-benefit. It is not to guarantee your death. So, all I ask you, the skeptic, the doubting Thomas, Christian or not, is to stop for a moment, take a breath, take that left side of your brain, fire up the right side of your brain, and let them work together with heart and mind And don't just get solidified in your belief that you always held because that's what we Christians used to do. Open your mind. Consider the integration of supernatural and natural world of heart and mind and soul. Consider the reality of that possibility. And on the note of doubt, I'll leave you with this. Does anybody know Simon of Perea? Raise your hand if you know Simon of Perea. Okay, Simon Bar Kokhba. Anyone? There's one. Anthrongis. How about him? Anthrongis. How about Moses of Crete? How about Jesus? You heard of Jesus of Nazareth? Whether you believe in him or not, have you heard of him? Okay, all of those guys were men who were attested to be the Messiah in ancient times. And there are hundreds more. Moses of Crete told his followers that he was going to lead them through the Red Sea and drown them all. Most of these guys were killed, crushed. What are we doing here? What does the skeptic do with that? What a conspiracy. So, We're all doubters. We all look for a sign when signs are all around us and everywhere. But after all you've seen, after all you've been through, do you need to stick your fingers there? If you do, he says do it. And he gives testimony to that and he leaves scripture behind for that. And he accommodates the doubting Thomas 
He accommodates his mind, his intellect, his need for tangible proof. But I want to leave you with this too. Just a chapter before that, who was the first person to discover Jesus when he was resurrected? Anybody remember? Mary Magdalene. The woman that had had seven demons cast out of her. The woman that tradition and some people think may have been the woman, the adulterous woman that Jesus protected in John 8. Um, She may have been the woman, uh, the nameless woman who washed his feet with her hair and her tears. How did she discover the reality of Jesus? Do you remember? She didn't recognize him. She thought he was the gardener until he said her name. Mary. spoke to her heart. We are not a dichotomy. We are not a mind or a heart. We are both of those things. And that is why God came. That is why, because you're both an intellect and a heart, because you live by both faith and reason, God came as you. To deliver his good news that peace is here and it will find its completion through his people. So open your mind, open your heart, and let him in. Christian or not. And come see me after if you want to talk about that. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm a doubting Thomas. And I'm a Mary Magdalene. Sometimes I'm a mess and I'm emotional and I I feel isolated and alone and separated from you. And I just need you to say my name. And you do. And you've known it from the beginning of time, your word says. The hair's on my head. And sometimes I need answers. I need those Thomas tangible signs and you've given them to me in your word in all of these stories tested throughout history and in my own life as you have redeemed me by your grace. So I pray with my brothers and sisters in Christ that we would live as agents of peace, as sent out people empowered by the Holy Spirit, freed from our doubts with confidence to help others lay claim to the peace that comes in the risen Christ. In His name we pray. Amen.